you're visiting with us this morning or joining us on the live stream, we've been preaching through the book of Titus and we continue in chapter 2 this morning. Displaying or exhibiting works of art in a museum, especially something like a, a priceless masterpiece, that process of exhibiting that particular piece is in itself a meticulous work of art. Consider all the factors that are involved. Consider the frame. You have to select a frame that most perfectly accentuates the beauty of that particular painting, considering genre, style, canvas, all these other things. Or consider the display cases, because don't forget, a masterpiece is priceless. Some of these things are national or international treasures worth an amount of money that is just beyond comprehension. So they have to be displayed in a case that not only maximizes your ability to view the painting from all angles, but it needs to be transportable. It needs to be extremely secure. Or consider the lighting as it relates to looking at a particular painting. Keith Christensen is the chairman of the Department of European Paintings at the Met in New York City. He says... In every great museum, you climb the stairs to the paintings' galleries. The reason is because it's the light that is the life of pictures. You can only get natural light at the top floor of a museum where you can take the roof off and put skylights in place. So just think about how light affects your ability to perceive a particular painting. The reason a museum staff works so hard to display or to adorn or to accentuate the beauty of a particular masterpiece is because they want as many people as possible to experience the painting in the fullness of its radiant glory. In today's passage, Paul exhorts the church to teach with with full integrity and to live in such a way in all of our varying relationships that it puts the beauty of God on display in the fullness of all its radiant glory. Our passage this morning is Titus chapter 2. Verses 7 through 10. Recall that, that, that Paul here is exhorting Titus about what a healthy church community and healthy doctrine looks like. Picking up in verse 7 then, hear the word of Almighty God. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, 
not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Lord, would you lead us now by your Spirit? Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might behold the glory of Jesus here. We ask in his name. Amen. So the essence of what I want to focus on this morning is, is actually fairly stark. And I mean it to be. The idea is this. The way we live either displays or disfigures the beauty of God. Now, let's get the elephant in the room out of the way immediately. Every single one of us, at some point or in some area of our life, has marred or disfigured the beauty of God. The two primary emphases in this text this morning in terms of application are going to be our speech and our work. You could have been sitting around with other employees at your work last Friday complaining about your boss and in some measure marring or disfiguring the beauty of God your Savior. Anybody have a difficult conversation walking out of the house this morning? Or in the car on the way to church? Opportunities are endless to disfigure or to mar the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior. So praise God, Isaiah 52, for one who was willing to be marred, that is disfigured beyond human semblance, so that we might have the opportunity to freely and joyfully and gloriously adorn the doctrine of the beauty of God, our Savior. Now, let's call our first section here, verses 7 and 8, sound speech that silences. And our second section, servants that adorn their Savior, verses 9 and 10. And we'll just begin with Paul's exhortation to Titus regarding sound speech, beginning in verse 7. Look at the way that it's laid out. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, here's an exhortation, followed by an explanation of why that's important. Have you ever been in a discussion with someone, maybe somebody you know at work or family member, a neighbor, and you, in your discussion or your back and forth exchange, you just can't get over the fact that between their clear thinking or their sincerity or their winsomeness, you just love talking to them even though you absolutely disagree with what they are telling you or what their thoughts are on a particular matter. I hope you have people in your life like this, because meaningful, ongoing relationships where people can actually disagree with one another and still continue the conversation are just rare these days. 
So recall here in Titus 2 that Paul is largely focusing on the way that people relate to one another. Because the way we relate to one another points to the God we worship, Paul takes time to describe how people are to relate to one another, specifically here within the family of God. So let's just kind of recapture the flow of thought here before we jump into verse 7. Going all the way back to chapter 1, elders are to be leading with conviction, clarity, courage, and compassion. Older men and older women are to be intentionally engaging and, and, and discipling those who are younger than them. There is a multi-generational dynamic that leads to a healthy church environment where everyone can thrive. If, if you're new to River Oaks or you have a desire to raise a godly family, I think this is a great place for you. I think it's a great place for you because we have multiple role models of varying ages that can be an encouragement to you in your faith as you continue to press on in your life. Now, our desire at River Oaks is that absolutely everyone has an opportunity to flourish spiritually. That goes for you if you're, if you're a small child. It goes for you if you're a single man or a single woman, or if you're newly married or right smack in the middle of child rearing. It is possible to flourish in the midst of child rearing, although sometimes it probably doesn't feel like that. Whether you're a retired empty nester or, or anyone else in any life circumstance in between, we want all of you to flourish. And we take this responsibility seriously as leadership. Now, Paul continues his exhortations to Titus. He challenges him personally to lead by example. This is similar to Paul's charge to young Timothy near the end of 1 Timothy 4, where he says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So the point here is not so much that either of these men is young. The point is this. You can lead by example in the church no matter what age you are. Paul's expectations of Timothy and Titus were not, not lowered in the slightest just because they were younger than many of the people that they were called to lead. If, you, if you're a young person, even a very young person in the church, think about how exciting and how weighty that is. I would go so far as to say that as a, as a young person, you are in one of the most critical times of your spiritual development. The reason is because many of the habits that you develop now are likely to continue well into adulthood, either for good or for bad. Starting now, you can begin to cultivate 
a growth in maturity well beyond your years. Or because of a lack of self-control, as we talked about last week, you might just languish in sin. But know that you don't get a free pass just because you're young. That's a startling realization. But what I want you to know is, as I, as I exhort you now over the next few minutes, especially if you're a young person, I want you to think about how often, namely every single Sunday, that we proclaim to you the good news about Jesus Christ. The glorious, joyful gospel of Christ. The reason is because everything that we do needs to flow from the hope that we have in Jesus. Our lives are not ultimately about how we serve Jesus, but how Jesus has first served us. And yet the Bible is very clear. And Paul, in this particular section, gives many exhortations to the church about how we might live in light of what Jesus has done for us. So, if you're a young person, if you commit to thinking about responsible uses of your time now, If you think about how to walk in sexual purity now, if you develop a daily habit of reading the word of God now, if you seek the leading of the Holy Spirit regularly in prayer now, if you practice using respectable, grace-giving, truthful speech now, and that includes the way you speak to your mom and dad. That includes the way that you speak to your siblings. There's no pass just because you're related to people. If you commit to being a mature man or a mature woman now, you are far more likely to maintain these godly habits as you continue to mature in your faith as you are increasingly made to be more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do so, in doing so, you will be a model or an example for other believers to follow. And I don't just mean people that are your same age or, or younger than you. There is hardly anything more encouraging or even convicting for an older Christian than to see a younger Christian following hard after Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, trusting in the good news of the gospel. But young people know that it, it, your faithfulness has to be a spirit-led, gospel-fueled faithfulness according to the word of God. On this path, on this trajectory, your life will increasingly display the beauty of God through the transforming power of the gospel. And our prayer is that you would capture this vision now. But there's also a danger. There's a danger at your young age of developing very unhealthy spiritual habits. Like not guarding your heart against sin. Not seeking to use your mouth and your body for for God-honoring purposes. Not seeking to influence others by pointing them to Christ. If you choose this path, even by default, 
you are laying a foundation for a lifelong battle with foolish and sinful living. Look, as an older person, that battle against sin is hard enough when you're resolving to fight against it. But if if you choose this path or just drift down this path, if you are a professing believer, your life is somehow marring or disfiguring the beauty of God and presenting the transforming nature of the gospel as, as powerless. That's what you're putting on display. So, so these are weighty things. These are weighty things for an older person, and these are weighty things for a younger person. What if you find yourself there? If you find yourself there, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. In your turning to Christ, you will turn away from your sin. Turn to the one who is marred beyond any human semblance in your place so that you might live a life of freedom and joy in following him. He was made extraordinarily ugly on the cross so that your life might be a beautiful testimony to the Lord your God. But it has to be fueled by the Spirit as you trust in Jesus according to the Word of God. Now, if you're an older saint, so you're kind of on the other end of the spectrum here from all these young people, don't just settle for a a crown of silver hair as your glory. Rather, let the Spirit's ongoing beautification of your life be your crowning glory. The gospel has the power to save and the gospel has the power to sanctify at any age. So older saint, as you consider the reality that you are closer to standing in the presence of absolute holiness than you ever have been before in your life, just let that reality take your breath away for a moment. You will one day, comparatively soon, be ushered into the presence of absolute holiness. I pray that you today would feel more motivated than ever before to have every aspect of your life reflect the beautiful holiness of God and the life-transforming power of the gospel. It's never too late to be saved, and it's never too late to be sanctified, to be conformed into the image of Jesus, our beloved Lord. May you cross the finish line swinging the sword of the Spirit. May you cross the finish line worshiping the Lord our God in the splendor of holiness. Few things are more encouraging to younger believers than for us to look ahead and see older believers who are fighting till the end. Fighting against sin and fighting for the purposes of God. Reaching out to us and saying, come on. We're going to cross this finish line. Nothing is going to stop us because of the power of God in our lives. That's a hope. That's a hope for us as a church. And that will be the fruit of healthy community 
as we interact with each other in a multi-generational way for the glory and honor of God. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul here is talking about what Titus should teach and preach as a matter of focus. Our aim as a preaching team is that our actions would match our words. That is, that we would have integrity with what we say and how we attempt to live by the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus. In other words, this specific verse informs how we think about preaching and teaching. Our goal is that our words could carry a that they would carry a, a dignity, uh, a gravity that is commensurate with the nature of what we're teaching and preaching. Our prayer is that our doctrinal emphases would be clear and rightly proportioned with, with what the whole Bible teaches. Look, it's one thing to be funny. It's another thing to tell good stories. But, but those things in and of themselves benefit you zero as it relates to being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Being funny isn't necessarily an option for all of us. And praise God, that isn't a temptation. Because when all of us are ushered into the presence of holiness, you won't be thinking about telling a funny story or a hilarious anecdote. You will want to be holy because the Lord your God is holy. You will want to have clarity on the gospel because you now are standing in the presence of your triune God. You want to be clear on the object of your worship because one day you won't just be worshiping him by faith. You will be worshiping him face to face in his immediate presence and we want to prepare you for that. As we teach, our prayer is that our tone would be pastoral and and the applications would be appropriate so that God's glory might never be disfigured or marred, but rather that through the teaching, his glory would be accentuated in a manner that befits its beauty. Now, one reason... This is important is found in verse 8. This is the explanation that Paul gives for the exhortation. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul knows that the message that we proclaim as the church is the same message that he proclaimed. Right? That's how it is designed. So think back to our study of Acts with me. Everywhere Paul went... His message was gloriously received by some people. And his message was vigorously opposed, even violently opposed, by many, many others throughout the book of Acts. But preaching isn't the only ministry of the word. 
all of us are called to the ministry of the word. Our job is to equip all of us or to do the work of ministry within your spheres of influence. So whether you're sharing truth with, with family members, perhaps, in these upcoming days as, as Easter approaches, whether you're testifying about the hope that you have to a coworker at work, whether you're even communicating with someone over social media about God, any perceived offense from the person that you're talking to, any perceived offense should come from the content of the message itself, not from our character or our conduct or the way that we communicated. That's the goal. Our goal is to rather adorn the doctrine of God with our words and with our actions. If people reject the God that we proclaim to them. May those who oppose us reject the true beauty of God and not a disfigured version of God, somehow marred by the messenger. God forbid. Verse 9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is a verse that, <clears throat> verse 9, that some people use to argue that the Bible, or at least the Apostle Paul, approves or approved of slavery. That's no small charge. So what do we do with that? Is that true? Why doesn't Paul just dismantle slavery here and all of its ideological foundations? Why? Why does he rather choose to exhort slaves, even in the dynamic of a master-slave relationship. What's going on here? Now, my goal here is, is not at all to minimize, but rather to contextualize what Paul is saying. Undoubtedly, some slaves suffered under cruel taskmasters, and slavery is a horrific evil. But a few kind of historical realities might help to get us to understand why Paul addresses bondservants the way that he does. So Dan Doriani lists some helpful facts in his commentary on Titus. First, that in the Roman Empire, over a third of the population was in slavery. That's just startling to me. But it tells you that it was everywhere in the society, at least in Rome. In cities like Rome, the citizens didn't work at all. They didn't do any hard labor. So all of the labor was done by slaves. Servitude was literally everywhere, and if you wanted work done, you needed a servant to do it in that context. Also, slavery was not based on race. 
People of all races became slaves. They could become a slave either by birth, by being born into a slave family, or often by conquest of a foreign power, taking over your nation, or for economic reasons. And in this case, people often voluntarily entered into servitude to pay off a debt of some type. Slaves and and, and free men interacted socially, which might be surprising. In fact, many slaves operated very prosperous businesses and some even held high government positions. And finally, slavery was seldom permanent. In Paul's time, over half the slaves received their freedom by age 30. So, Why is all of this important? I think understanding the context of of, of first century slavery in the Roman Empire helps helps us understand why Paul gives instructions directly to slaves who were members of churches. Rather than to just write a full-scale indictment of slavery as a whole. Paul was not primarily a social revolutionary. He was very respectful of the Roman government. There's multiple examples of that from the book of Acts. Rather, he was a commissioned missionary, commissioned by God himself. Paul knew that the best way to bring about real change in any community was for the human heart to be spiritually transformed. And that's just as true in 21st century America as it was in 1st century Rome. But further, we know that Paul was fully against slavery because in 1 Timothy 1.10, he lists enslavers, that is, those who enslave other human beings, among those who are, quote, living contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So Paul has clearly actually called out slavery in his writings. Notice, too, that Paul's charge here in verse 9 is is both dignifying and very direct. He challenges bondservants not to make any excuse for conduct that is contrary to sound doctrine. Even in the master-servant relationship, they are to be submissive, to work in a way that is pleasing to their masters. They're, They're not to even steal small things, which is basically what pilfering means. And they are to be faithful. They are to maintain fidelity, steadfastness, loyalty. Or you could summarize that by saying they are to remain trustworthy in absolutely everything. Why? Verse 10. Because in so doing, they will display or adorn or accentuate the beauty of God their Savior. Utterly amazing. Slaves were evangelists. If a third of the population of Rome were slaves, how many of them heard the gospel and believed in Jesus? We know that servants within Roman authorities' households came to saving faith in Jesus through Paul's proclamation. So praise God that these slaves are called to testify to their Masters about the goodness and the beauty of God, their Savior. 
But what's the first thought that comes to mind when you think about what, what would it look like for us or for me to apply this principle or these principles within our employment relationships these days in our own lives? I can tell you the first thought that comes to my mind is that if this was Paul's exhortation to slaves in, in their work employment situations, we really don't have any excuse at all not to do the exact same thing in our 401k having, insurance providing, competitive wage paying, vacation offering jobs here in America in the 21st century. If even the master-slave relationship was not an excuse for ungodly behavior, then it's not an excuse anywhere. We certainly should not steal from our employers, not even time, whether that's at lunch or when we start or when we finish. We shouldn't argue with or complain about our employers, especially sitting around with other employees. You know, if you're a young person and you're a student, I think it's a right application to be able to say, it is sinful, even disfiguring and marring of the beauty of God, for you to sit around as a group and complain about your teachers. And if you're a homeschool kid... You have a double problem. <laughs> That's doubly bad. Right. We certainly should seek to be the type of employee who pleases those we work for in a, in, a, in a healthy, appropriate way, and to be trustworthy in all things. That's really what catches my attention. Paul is not allowing a carve-out for anything where it would be okay to justify not acting in a godly manner, even in one or two small areas, if you're in a terrible situation. He doesn't lower the standard at all. So, when we think about these things, you can ask, are these things true of me at work? That is, if the call is to be faithful in all things, so that in everything... Do you you hear that? There's no wiggle room there. We are to be faithful in all things so that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of of God our Savior. Then we need to ask, is that true of me? Specifically in this context at work. And is that still true of me if I'm working from home? Which is much more common over the last couple of years than it was just a short time ago. Or to get at the essence of the question that we're thinking about, what are the ways I am disfiguring or displaying the beauty of God at work or through my work? That's a fair and legitimate question. Now, as we're reflecting on the soundness of our speech from earlier and setting an example for other believers and, and <clears throat> what our, the faithfulness of our work would look like here, Let's consider a deeper question. Where does the motivation come from? Where does the motivation come from for a young leader like Titus 
to try to serve as an example for others in the midst of a very, very difficult church situation on the island of Crete. Or, perhaps even more dramatically here, thinking about bond servants or slaves, how is it even possible for a slave to freely choose to adorn or to accentuate or to display the beauty of God their Savior to a master by faithfully serving in all things despite his or her circumstances? What could be so powerful of a motivator that a slave would say, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to glorify God even here. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a powerful motivator. The answer is by looking to God, their savior, whose doctrine they are attempting to adorn in every circumstance. We too, brothers and sisters, must look to the one who saves us, namely Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. So in this context, consider that the Son of Man, that is, the suffering servant himself. The Son of Man, the suffering servant himself, he came not to be served. Think, just hold that in your mind for a moment. The Son of Man, the suffering servant of God, came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. This is the glory of the gospel itself, that the beautiful suffering servant frees true slaves from a deeper spiritual bondage so that even in their physical bondage, they might adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior. How powerful is the gospel of Christ? It's so powerful that a bondservant, even in the midst perhaps of mistreatment, wants to be faithful so that his harsh master might see the beauty of the gospel on display in his life. We too have been freed from the bondage of our sin and our service to Satan by the servant who suffered in our place on Calvary's cross. We too were slaves by birth, born into original sin through the failure of the first Adam. But we have been set free from the curse of sin through the gospel by the suffering servant, the second and final Adam. We too were slaves captured by a, by a foreign power and made to serve in his unholy kingdom but by a far greater and more powerful ruler. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved servant and son. We too were slaves who, who, who willingly sold ourselves into slavery. We were slaves who willingly sold ourselves into servitude because of overwhelming spiritual debts that we could not pay. And we have no hope of getting out. No hope other than Jesus. Praise God, the suffering servant, God's glorious son, 
canceled our record of debt by nailing it to the cross forever. In place of our debt, we now have an eternal inheritance so incredibly rich, it, it, it defies comprehension. For we have been redeemed not with perishable things like, like silver and, and gold, but with the precious, infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the Son of God. In light of this reality, may, may we as the redeemed people of God use the freedom purchased by the blood of God's Son. May we use that freedom not to disfigure or to mar the beauty of God, but rather to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world, and for the sake of the glory and honor of our beloved God. The most beautiful masterpiece ever is the reality of the gospel itself. Through the power of the Spirit, as we trust in Jesus, may our lives adorn, beautify, accentuate the doctrine of God our Savior. To him be power and dominion both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Spirit, what do you want to do in us or through us as we respond to the reality of the gospel and to the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior? I pray that you would, you, would, you would bring conviction to areas of our lives where we need to experience conviction. And I pray that in those places you would also convince us freshly this morning, of the reality of grace, of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to wash away our sin. Lord, let us now sing for joy that Jesus purchased our redemption, our ransom by his finished work on Calvary's cross so that we are now free, free from the power of sin, free to have to choose sin in moments of temptation and free to adorn your beauty with the way that we think and the way that we speak, the way that we act, and the way that we love each other. To that end, now, would you cause our hearts to be filled to overflowing with joy as we sing about the greatness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.